This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. We're here to talk about monetary policy in the face of large supply shocks, which is what Britain is going through. And we're doing that with Silvana Tenreo, who is an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, who is exiting that illustrious role to return to the far safer space of the LSE in the, this summer. The, um, um, we've, I've been doing this job at the Resolution Foundation for eight years, and we've done a few kind of valedictory speeches from people exiting the MPC. And in the good old days, when the fields were green and the children were healthy, then you used to enjoy those because basically you could start each one with saying, you've done six years on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee and you haven't done anything, have you? <laughs> you haven't had to raise rates, you haven't had to cut rates, uh, you had two days a week um, to discuss the fact that you weren't going to raise or cut rates and then the six years ended and you never gave a nice speech and you went away. Now, I used to think that was boring. The, um, I would now be very happy uh, for that to be what macroeconomic policy making in Britain looked like it. But that is not the world we are living in because of the supply shocks that the title of Silvana's speech focuses on. So there's unfortunately far too much going on in macroeconomic policy making, both in terms of what's actually happening to the economy and to the country and how that affects people, and then in terms of how policymakers are responding and the uncertainty um, that brings with it. So we're going to dig into all of that today. So first of all, we're going to hear Silvana's speech and then we've got a great respondent Sushu Varvani who was previously giving one of those speeches there um, uh, as he left the Bank of England's much possibility but is now the chief investment officer at PGIM Varvani is going to give us his response and then we're going to have time to discuss the rather big issues that are raised with all of you in the room and those of you online if you are online or in the room you can ask questions on Slido it's hashtag interesting times or if you're in the room you can raise your hand that is the plan for this evening so Silvana over to you Thank you very much, Thorsten. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me start by thanking the Resolution Foundation and the Society of Professional Economists for co-hosting this event. As Thorsten said, this is um, my final public speech as an MPC member, and I would like to take the opportunity to thank my current and former colleagues on the MPC and the Bank of England staff. <laughs> It has been a true privilege to serve on the committee and work with so many talented and dedicated people indefatigably committed to public service. Um, this has not been a quiet six-year six on the MPC. Two once-in-a-generation shocks of extreme virulence have hit the economy in a space of less than three years. First, the pandemic and its various aftershocks, and then the war in Ukraine and its effects on energy and other commodity prices. <coughs> the economy has also faced changes in international trading relations, most importantly the UK's exit from the EU, and between the US and China. And there have been several episodes of global and domestic financial volatility. In my speech today, I will attempt to put the scale of these shocks into historical context. I will then ask what monetary policy can do to maintain credibility when faced with such large shocks before touching on lessons for economic forecasting and communications. 
Both of the enormous shocks that have affected the economy, the pandemic and the war, have been global in nature. The pandemic affected everyone, while the economic effects of the Ukraine war have also been widely felt, given the importance of energy and commodities to economic activity. Despite being global shocks, their effects have differed markedly across countries. Um, this slide, this slide uh, shows the path for household consumption compared to its pre-pandemic trend in each of the UK, the US and the Euro area. In the US, consumption quickly recovered to around its pre-pandemic trend, whereas in the UK it remains some 9 percentage points below, with the Euro area somewhere in between. One of the key drivers of these differences was the different fiscal response across jurisdictions. In the UK and the Euro area, fiscal policy largely aimed at preserving jobs and maintaining incomes. In the US, fiscal policy was a more widespread demand stimulus, increasing aggregate household income well above its pre-COVID trend. This large US demand stimulus combined with rolling supply disruptions related to the pandemic was also the driver for much of the rapid global increase in goods price inflation from 2021. The other major cause of different outcomes was differences in the scale of the energy shock across regions. The left-hand chart here shows that the increase in retail energy prices was far larger in the euro area and the UK, both net energy importers, than in the US which was largely unaffected by the increase in European gas prices stemming from the war in Ukraine. This led to a large reduction in real incomes in the UK and Euro area, contributing to weaker consumption. Differences in the size as well as in the timing of the energy shock are also a primary reason for different inflation dynamics across regions, shown in the right-hand chart here. In the US, the cumulative increase in retail energy prices from the end of 2019, implied by the figures in the chart, uh, peaked at less than 30%. In the euro area, it reached 80% at peak, though started to reverse quickly soon afterwards. In the UK, the figure was about 115%. And given the lag nature of the F of gem pricing mechanism in the UK, it only started reversing very recently in April 2023. Any assessment of cross-country inflation dynamics also needs to account for the relative impact of energy prices on measures of core and domestic inflation. Energy is directly or indirectly an input to all sectors, even in the services sector, as recently quantified by my colleagues at the bank, uh, Swati Dingra and Jack Page. So while measures of core inflation or even core services inflation can be useful proxies for domestically generated inflation in some circumstances, they have also been heavily influenced by the energy price shock. Moreover, Given that some explicit or implicit wage indexation in the UK depends on measured rates of headline CPI or RPI inflation, there is likely to have been at least some impact on wage growth irrespective of the tightness or otherwise of the labour market. 
these two large shocks have also been the source of the cost of living crisis. Higher energy prices reduced the real incomes of the UK, which is not something that monetary policy can offset. Even if we had known about the shocks in advance, then the best that monetary policy can do is to choose within the remit whether the shock affects the economy through temporarily higher inflation or instead through higher unemployment and lower nominal income growth. In either case, real incomes necessarily fall. As well as comparing across regions, we can also compare the inflation increases with those in response to previous energy price increases. The recent energy price increase has been larger than other episodes in the past 50 years, including those that hit the economy in the 1970s. Despite the larger shock, the rate of CPI inflation uh, that we saw last year was well below the peaks that UK inflation measures reached in the 1970s and early 1980s. The lower peak in inflation in part reflects a better starting point. The 1970s energy shocks came after many years of steadily rising inflation. It could also signal a policy framework with great, greater credibility than in the past. But given the scale of the shocks we have seen, how should policymakers go about retain, retaining credibility and ensuring inflation does come back to target at an appropriate horizon? Those are the questions. In, certain, in, in central banking crisis, um, um, in central banking circles, um, <laughs> um, credibility is typically seen as synonymous with anchored inflation expectations. So much so that metrics of long-term inflation expectations derived from uh, financial markets are often used as a measure of central bank credibility. Financial market measures have the advantage that they are derived from contracts that involve market participants putting significant sums of money on the line. Participants have every incentive to be well informed about the inflation outlook, which should be reflected in accurate expectations. Longer term expectations as proxied by the two year or five year inflation swap rate, five years forward, can tell us what financial markets think will happen at a point when shocks have subsided, potentially giving a clearer read on anchoring. These measures shown in uh, this slide also have some major disadvantages. At a practical level, they are measures of inflation compensation, not expectations. In the UK, they reference RPI rather than CPI, with the wedge between the two inflation rates varying over time. The instruments can also be illiquid and are heavily used for hedging pension liabilities. Both of these factors can lead to movements in compensation unrelated to expectations or risks of future CPI inflation. More fundamentally, if we care about inflation expectations because they can feed back into inflation itself, it is far from clear than that financial market inflation expectations are the ones that matter. In simple textbook models, there is only one set of inflation expectations, which also accurately predict future inflation in the absence of shocks. In these models, controlling inflation expectations is sufficient to control inflation. 
In reality, expectations may differ across different households, firms, financial market participants and policymakers. To work out the appropriate policy response, we need to ask which expectations have changed, how will those changes influence actual inflation dynamics, and how can policy best offset any changes in a way that meets the MPC uh, remit. On their own, changes in financial market inflation expectations are not likely to lead to self-fulfilling inflationary dynamics. Market participants have no role in firms' price-setting price decisions nor in their wage negotiations with workers. This is why the literature has now moved to understanding inflation expectations of both firms and households. Now, in a uh, recent paper from um, with Bank of England co-authors, we summarize a literature on the factors shaping inflation expectations and in particular the role of monetary policy and the effect of inflation expectations on both activity and inflation. We conclude that despite their prominent role in economic models and in policy debates, the understanding of the formation and economic impact of expectations in the literature remains limited. But we do draw some ten tentative conclusions from, from the empirical evidence, which I think have important implications for policy. On the effect of monetary policy on household and firm expectations, empirically identified monetary policy shocks have significant effects on inflation, but more limited, if any, direct effects on inflation expectations. There is even evidence that the effect on expectations often goes in the wrong direction. Instead, although households and firms' inflation expectations tend to follow actual inflation, they are also often highly sensitive in the short run to volatile but salient components of the basket, such as the prices of energy and food, which are largely outside the control of monetary policy. The policy conclusion I draw is that it would be unwise to attempt to use inflation expectations or some other metric of perceived credibility as an intermediate target for monetary policy. In the short term, these expectations are affected by volatile shocks, but less so by monetary policy. When faced with a situation in which inflation is set to return to the target, but expectations or perceptions of credibility have moved, there is no trade-off for monetary policy. The route back to full credibility and anchored inflation expectations involves bringing inflation back to target, responding to changes in expectations only to the extent that they affect the medium-term inflation outlook. This conclusion has historical echoes. In the UK and in the US, the policy tightening in response to the 1970s um, inflation was implemented in part through the adoption of money growth measures and in, as intermediate targets. These monetary targets were themselves aimed at restoring policy credibility. But when money growth volatility left policymakers with a choice between meeting their intermediate targets and their ultimate objective of controlling inflation, the money targets were abandoned as low and stable inflation was deemed to be the ultimate path to credibility. Another commonly proposed way of ensuring credibility and keeping inflation expectations anchored is by following a simple monetary policy rule. The best known of these rules is the Taylor rule, which 
in its most basic form recommends that for each percentage point increase or decrease in inflation, interest rates should be raised or cut by more than one percentage point in response. In simple models, such, as, such a rule is sufficient to always bring inflation back to, a tar to the target after the shock. As a result, if a policymaker can promise to follow such a rule at all times, then inflation expectations should remain anchored. Now, unfortunately, backward-looking rules or policies such as the standard Taylor rule do a particularly bad job of stabilizing inflation when there are lags in the transmission of monetary policy. One particularly visible lag right now is the effect of policy on mortgage rates. With a high proportion of fixed rate mortgages, the majority of the effect of the large and rapid policy tightening so far on mortgage rates has not yet occurred, with the same true for the overall impact of monetary policy on inflation. In the presence of policy lags, changing policy aggressively in response to past data can become destabilizing rather than stabilizing. This is especially the case in response to shocks with large transitory components or following a succession of rate changes in one direction when it can lead to over-tightening. By, by the time additional policy changes have their largest effects on inflation, either the shock has already reversed or the cumulative impact of past policy has already brought inflation back to the target. As a result, a backward-looking policy rule is likely to become highly suboptimal and inconsistent with the remit. A policymaker who adopted one would be faced with a similar choice as under an intermediate policy target, to stick to the rule in the hope of retaining credibility or to abandon it and set whatever policy was better able to meet the inflation target and fulfill the remit, ensuring long-run credibility. The idea that monetary policy needs to be forward-looking is something that the MPC has stressed since its inception. Uh, Charlie gave many speeches uh, on this. In 1997, uh, Mervyn King, then chief economist, set out that the guiding principle of monetary policy was to look ahead and act early. And that the inflation target did not mean setting policy according to the current rate of inflation. The then future chief economist Andy Holden had described such a strategy colorfully as the monetary policy dog chasing one's tail. Given lags between changes in monetary policy and their effects, a forecast becomes essential in setting appropriate policy. To sum up, my view is that there are no shortcuts to obtaining credibility, nor in the face of very large shocks to maintaining it. As the MPC has always done, it must interpret all of the economic data, including different measures of inflation expectations, and judge what they imply for its inflation forecast. It can then set policy in line with the remit to ensure inflation settles at 2% in the medium term. I have discussed so far uh, how policymakers need to fulfill their remits to maintain credibility, and that, given the presence of policy lags, they need to produce forecasts to meet the inflation targets. An additional risk then is that if those forecasts are not accurate enough, policymakers could mistakenly set policy in a way that led to suboptimal outcomes. There are three areas where I have found that the nature of the MPC's forecast is not always well understood outside the bank. 
First, the role of forecast uncertainty. Second, the difference between short-term and medium-term forecasts. And third, that the MPC only makes conditional forecasts. First, many discussions of the MPC's forecast tend to ignore the ever-present role of uncertainty. In the mid-1990s, the bank um, brought in the innovation of using fund charts to highlight that the forecast was a probability distribution. There is uncertainty about the shocks that will arise, about the structure of the economy, and about how policy affects it. The modal or mean points of the forecast are important for policy decisions because they represent the balance of risks. But with the fund chart, the MPC is stating that it expects outturns to come in above them, on a symmetric forecast, 50% of the time. Thus, any comparison of outturns with forecast needs to compare over a long period of time to the fund chart distributions, not just point estimates such as a mode. Second, on the type of forecast, the MPC uses different types of analysis, data and judgments when putting together its short-term forecast and uh, the medium-term forecast. Uh, for the short-term uh, forecast, uh, often it uses analysis, data and judgments for the next six months and the medium-term uh, forecast for one to three years ahead. Forecast uh, misses at these different horizons would also have quite different implications for our policy votes, um, for mine in particular. It may not be surprising that these often depend on different factors. Because data are published with a lag, short-term forecasts are often for things that have already happened or will do in the, in the very near future. Hence, there tend to be a host of other timelier data, including from surveys and from the uh, bank's agents, which can give contemporaneous or near contemporaneous information about uh, likely data outturns. When there are errors on short-term forecasts, they often come from data revisions or from unpredictable data volatility, which contains little information about the future. As a result, errors on these short-term forecasts often do not have major implications for the appropriate stance of policy. Errors can also arise if you, uh, usual stati statistical correlations between leading indicators and the data break down, as has occurred recently between the PPI output and CPI goods inflation data, shown here in this graph. Again, such discrepancies are often related to volatility and less often to a persistent structural change in the relationships. In contrast, the medium-term parts of the forecast depend more, depend more on the MPC's judgments on macroeconomic factors and behaviors. With fewer reliable leading indicators to go on and more time to further shocks, for further shocks to arise, this horizon is more uncertain. But given the lags in policy transmission, it is the medium-term forecast that has been more relevant for my policy votes on the MPC. Third, a crucial but often ignored feature of the MPC's forecast is that it is a conditional forecast. It's not a prediction of the absolute probabilities of different outturns occurring. Rather, it is a forecast or a scenario of what might happen if the various conditioning assumptions came true. 
it should be interpreted and, and reported as answering the question, if all of these conditioning assumptions were to come true, how does the MPC think the economy would evolve? These include conditioning assumptions for asset prices, for government fiscal policy, and for energy and other commodity prices. The biggest revisions in the MPC's inflation forecasts over the past 18 months have come from changes in the conditioning path for energy prices, rather than changes in the rest of the forecast. These three aspects of the MPC forecast uncertainty, the role of now casting and conditionality are important to recognize when scrutinizing forecast performance. In one of my first speeches as an MPC member, I discussed one important input into the MPC forecasts and policy deliberations, economic models. The key point I made then is that although models are useful, the MPC's forecasts are based on judgment rather than unthinkingly following some model output. There's no sense in which the models can lead the forecast astray, since the MPC is free to make any forecast it wishes independently of any of the assumptions or results in any of the models it consults. The role of the MPC is to piece together different intuitions from different models, data and its own experience to decide on the best forecasts and policy decisions. Ultimately, it is the MPC that decides on any forecasts. This contrasts with some central banks where the staff produce forecasts independently of policymakers. Subject to uh, my points about how to judge the success or otherwise of a forecast, any criticism of the forecasts should therefore be apportioned to us, the MPC members, who decide on them. Although their importance for the MPC's forecast is somewhat sometimes exaggerated, I discussed in 2018 other places where models are essential. In particular, we can use models to give quantitative estimates of different economic mechanisms and to evaluate the effects of different policies. I have used those models for these purposes recently to learn whether counterfactual alternative monetary policy choices could have led to better outcomes over the recent period of very high inflation. Looking at policy simulations uh, reveals that irrespective of any MPC forecasts over the past few years, it is questionable whether any realistic alternative monetary policy could have better fulfilled the remit. Using quantitative estimates is essential in any discussion of policy in order to allow for uh, a realistic assessment of its impact relative to other factors. The simulations shown here ask what the MPC could have done if, hypothetically, it had been able to perfectly predict future outcomes back in 2021, including the rise in energy and other commodity prices stemming from the war in Ukraine. The purple shaded area in the chart shows CPI inflation up to Q1, um, the first quarter this year, and the forecast beyond that in our uh, May NPR forecasts. The very steep pro profile of CPI inflation with a rapid increase and a rapid fall, largely um, as energy price increases reverse, is one reason why it would have been difficult for policy to do anything materially different in line with the remit. The orange uh, area layers on a counterfactual 
tighter monetary policy of setting uh, inflation. Specifically, it shows a scenario where the MPC had raised bank rate far faster, starting in the fourth quarter of 2021, to reach almost 7% by 2022 Q2, and the peak of around 9.5% this year. This also happens to yield slightly more cumulative tightening than would be recommended by a simple backward-looking Taylor rule of the type I discussed earlier. The aqua line uh, here shows the counterfactual outcome, outcome for inflation. Despite raising interest rates far more, inflation still peaks close to double digits at a little over 9%. The larger benefit would be next year, as the scenario is constructed so that inflation would come back to target at the start of 2024, rather than reaching close to 2% at the end of the year. But this would have had to be traded off against the costs in line with the MPC's remit. Unemployment would have needed to be around 4 percentage points higher to deliver this extra reduction in inflation. And crucially, Given our obligation to meet the inflation target in the medium term, inflation would undershoot the target significantly later in 2024 and likely to enter deflation in 2025. To summarize, even if everything, including the Ukraine war, had been perfectly predictable in advance, I judge that the increasing inflation we have seen would have been broadly as prescribed by the MPC's remit. The remit tells us to focus on the medium-term inflation outlook, trading off inflation misses with real activity in the short run. Um, while always setting policy to best fulfill its remit, the MPC can also ensure trust and credibility by being open and transparent and explaining its actions to the public. The, um, the Bank of England has long been at the forefront of transparent communication and has also improved the communication of MPC decisions in myriad ways, including over my time on the committee. But we should always be striving to seek further improvements. Looking back on my own public communications, both individually and collectively with the committee, there are three areas where I have come to think speculatively that this could be beneficial, there could be beneficial improvements. First, there may be scope for the MPC to redouble efforts to explain the remit and the UK's flexible inflation targeting framework. This was naturally a focus of much MPC communication shortly after the committee was formed. Various speeches and papers explain the flexibility inherent in the inflation target, its forward-looking nature, the role of transmission lags, and trade-offs between the variability of inflation and the variability of output. We should not take for granted that this understanding of the framework will continue to remain present in people's minds a quarter of a century on. Second, it may be useful to continue using multiple scenarios to explain policy decisions, in turn de-emphasizing central forecasts. This could help especially when there is large uncertainty over conditioning assumptions, as the MPC has found over the past few years. There's also evidence that people generally find conditional reasoning more difficult to follow, 
So using more scenarios may help alleviate those difficulties, avoiding conditional forecasts being understood as unconditional ones. Third and finally, I have come to think that the advantages of MPC members publishing their own views or paths on future policy outweigh the potential costs. For example, I judge it helpful to publish my preferred future path for interest rates in a speech last year. As well as being transparent about my aims, expectations of future policy affect fixed rate interest rates charged and paid to borrowers and savers today, and hence determine part of our current monetary policy stance. And there have been times when I have judged that attempted to influence future interest rates would be a more effective way to achieve a given stance than changing bank rate. There are risks. Policymakers' views on future rates will change, and it is possible that expectations are misinterpreted as promises. MPC members are also individually accountable for their policy votes, which would make it more difficult for the MPC to publish a collective view on future policy. Any moves towards this type of guidance would certainly place a premium on effective communication. Um, the UK's inflation targeting framework heralded a period of greater macroeconomic volatility stability in the UK over the past 25 years. However, the enormous shocks that have affected the economy over the past three years are the largest test the framework has faced. I have argued today that the MPC um, should respond to those shocks in the way it always has, interpreting the data through the lens of forward-looking forecasts, setting policy to return inflation to the 2% target in the medium term, and transparently explaining how it is doing so. This has been an uncertain time for the economy and setting policy in such circumstances is challenging. But I have no doubt that the Bank of England and the MPC will continue doing their best for the people of the United Kingdom, whatever challenges lie ahead. I'll pause here and uh, I have to say I'm very pleased um, uh, to receive comments or um, 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 uh, thoughts from Sushil um, and I'm uh, looking forward to those. Great, thank you very much indeed. There was, there was a lot um, in there on the current conjecture and about the lessons from the last um, six years and as every time I've heard you speak over the last six years we all learn something so thank you for that and for the public service over those six years. Sushil, what do you reckon? Great. Well thank you very much Silvana. Uh, I have to say that, 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 that as I just said I've always enjoyed your speeches over the last six years. I've always looked forward to them, downloaded them religiously, read them uh, I must confess I haven't always agreed, but I've certainly learned uh, a great deal. Uh, I found every time I read one of your speeches, there was something I learned that I didn't previously know, um, and, and, and that's fantastic. Um, and for people who know me better, um, when I was invited to uh, come today, I was scheduled to be going to Lords to watch uh, England play Australia the ashes. I gave that up. You've got an upgrade, you mean? <laughs> huge upgrade. This is an upgrade. Hu huge upgrade. Better seats than at Lord's. <laughs> Better content. Fewer defeats in this room. No, no. But, but this is exactly what I was <laughs> saying. 
huge upgrade. I, I didn't even hesitate for a second because I'd much rather listen to Silvana. Um, and uh, I've also uh, always enjoyed how clearly and effectively you've explained yourselves. So I've seen a number of your TSE appearances, uh, and I think uh, your performances there have been exemplary. Um, also, I'm stunned at how hard you work. I mean, this is your last week on the MPC in two speeches in a week. It, it's absolutely amazing. So uh, I think all of us will miss you. Uh, and, and miss your contribution, but I hope you find some other way of making a contribution to public life in this country. So thank you. Uh, now, I didn't have prior access uh, to the speech for obvious confidentiality reasons, so I can't act as uh, a typical discussant. Um, I, you know, I certainly enjoyed your remarks just now. Uh, but I, I think I agreed with you that I, I might be allowed to say a few things that, uh, that might at first sight seem somewhat orthogonal. Um, so I hope you'll uh, indulge me in that. Um, and I thought, you know, I think everyone in this room would agree that your contribution has been fantastic, that you've done a great job. Um, you know, we all love the fact that we have an independent Bank of England. Um, it, it, you know, it needs to be treasured. We saw the damage that can be done when the independent economic institutions were attacked last September. Uh, it's therefore, in some respects, very sad when we see a lot of ill-informed criticism of the bank uh, that is, alas, all too common at the moment. Uh, and therefore, I think it's our collective duty to see what it is uh, we can change and amend uh, in the spirit of making us less vulnerable to such criticism. And I'm sure you agree with that because uh, you had some very good suggestions yourself uh, about how we can become less vulnerable. So purely in that spirit, and I don't want you to take any of this personally, please, uh, that would mortify me. Uh, I have a few things that, you know, from a distance, uh, and this isn't my day job in the way it is yours, that I've noticed that maybe the bank could, should have done differently. Uh, so I, I very much offer, it, uh, offer these observations in a very tentative way. Um, so one is, I think, Savannah, as you correctly said, uh, the forecast is not a mechanical forecast based on a model but it's something that is supposed to, in some sense, represent the best collective judgment of you know, the nine good people around the table. I have to say, watching the last few years, I've not always been persuaded of that. So I think the most extreme example, which I think hurt the bank's credibility, was November 22, where the bank published a forecast where your GDP number was well, well below the consensus number. There was very little explanation offered. And what was, I think, even more damaging is that when individual MPC members were asked, they distanced themselves from the forecast. And, you know, I, I may not count accurately, but I think I counted five or six members who in public said they didn't sign up to that forecast. And that puzzled me, because I think it's very bad for the bank's credibility. 
And I think that raises a broader sort of issue of the extent to which uh, there was enough cross-checking going on uh, of the forecasts. So a simple example of that would be the autumn of 2020, where um, we had two things happen. We had money supply growth was very high, and we had the successful vaccine trials. So the successful vaccine trials sort of told you, I think, that over time lockdowns would end, and that over time velocity would normalize. Now, I've never been a monetarist. I've never been accused of that. Uh, I know the monetary aggregates sort of uh, left us many, many years ago. Um, but I, I must tell you that that really caught our attention. You know, in my day job, uh, I too have to forecast. Uh, now, fortunately, I don't forecast in the, in the public glare like yourselves. And fortunately, I'm assessed on fund performance and not my forecast performance, that's very lucky. Um, but uh, you still have to sort of vaguely get, the, you've got to outperform the consensus forecast to make money in terms of the game I try to play. And the money supply combined with the vaccine trials were a complete red flag to us that the fo consensus forecast was just totally awry. Um, and if I may say so, I, I sort of remember making this point the last time the Resolution Foundation asked me to comment uh, on yourself. And it's just a logical consistency point, really. It's just a cross-checking point. Uh, and I, I wonder if the committee uh, still spends as much time on that as it did certainly in the days when Charlie and I were on. I, I don't know how many forecast meetings you have these days. We used to have 12. Perhaps people thought there were too many. But at least some of those meetings were spent on precisely this kind of cross-checking. Um, the second point I'd make is that I've been surprised by, at least in public, uh, what, you know, in an extremely, I mean, forecasting is difficult at all times. It's been especially difficult after the pandemic because of the size of the shocks, which you rightly emphasize in your speech, and also because a lot of the relationships we normally rely upon are not working in the way they used to. So the beverage curve seems to have broken down, the Phillips curve seems to have broken down, lots of things seem to be different. Um, and it, you know, in this environment where there's so much uncertainty, I've been very, very surprised by some of the things that have been said by the bank over this period. I'm not talking about you, the bank as a whole. Um, so, so one example of that would be the way in which it was emphasized to the whole world in November 22 at the Inflation Report press conference that um, there was no way rates would need to go up to what the markets were pricing. Rates would be much lower. Uh, you know, I have to say, with all the uncertainties out there, uh, there were many people outside who weren't persuaded by that. Um, Charlie will remember there were f four or five of us ex-MPC members at a Fathom forum where we all said that we had no confidence that, uh, that indeed rates would not have to go to 5 or 6%. We just didn't know. Um, so I think as a communication device, 
that needs to be revisited as to the confidence with which that view was expressed was actually appropriate because what it did was it uh, undid the benefit of the hike that had been announced that day because you instantly came across as very dovish. And from an expectations component, uh, I believe that was uh, possibly a bit unhelpful. Um, similarly, I think this year, again, I think you made the point very well in, in, in the speech uh, just now. Uh, you know, these short-term forecasts were things, at least when I was on the committee, we hardly talked about because we knew that there's just so much noise that there's no point uh, sort of going to the stake for any of them. Uh, it's just largely unforecastable. But yet, many, many of your colleagues made a very big deal starting the beginning of this year about how much inflation would come down, how confident they were, how far it would fall. And I think that's been really unfortunate because what it's done is it's hurt your credibility and it's forced you into doing things that perhaps may not have been optimal. Because obviously at the latter stages of a tightening cycle, as you've emphasized many times, uh, the dangers of over-tightening are very high. Uh, but I think if you hadn't expressed this overconfidence in your short-term forecast, it would have been less likely that you would have had to tighten as much as you did last week. Uh, I mean, I think there should have been a, a much greater reference to how uncertain it was in terms of time lags. Time lags are such a big deal in terms of the link between PPI and CPI. We know that from many past cycles. And I think that should have been sort of front and center in the communication. Um, the other thing, tell me when you want me to keep quiet. Uh, three minutes. Three minutes, okay. Um, We've got to get their questions in. Of course. They're yeah. burning to ask them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the uh, sort of one other point, which of course is now being picked up by the Treasury Select Committee, and therefore will be debated to exhaustion, I'm sure, uh, is this whole issue um, about regime shifts. Again, in the sort of uh, my day job, uh, we knew that our models, which had been estimated from 95, were in danger. We also knew that our models from 1972 to 95 were likely to be inappropriate but we felt very uncomfortable about just sticking to our models from 95. So we started using a convex combination of the two. Explain to the viewers what we mean by regime change. Oh. Not everybody watching is okay. as focused on oh, forecasting. Okay. No, no, I, I, I apologize. So sorry, uh, that was too, far too, uh, it was an unnecessary term. I should just have talked about the possibility that inflation expectations have become de-anchored and therefore that would change. Uh, economic relationships. Um, and one of my surprises over the last three years uh, is why greater weight wasn't placed uh, on earlier samples in terms of the judgments. I mean, it's one thing to say we put in a skew, but I think, at least from what I read in terms of the testimony to the Treasury Select Committee, not enough was done in terms of empirical work on the 70s and 80s to see if it would give you 
a different view. Specifically a more persistent inflation view. Correct. Correct. And help you quantify that. Yeah. Which is what it did for us. Um, and uh, Silvana, you also made a very good suggestion about whether individual forecasts <laughs> should be published. Of course, Charlie remembers that they were published. Uh, certainly when I was on the committee, they were published. And then the committee moved away from them. Uh, so they must have had some very good reasons to move, move away from them. So as part of this whole review of the forecast process, it'll be important to understand why they moved away um, from individual forecasts. But anyway, it, it would be churlish for me to go on in this sort of uh, spirit. I just want to reiterate uh, that I'm very much a member of the Silvana fan club. And thank you very much for your public service. Thank you, Great, thank you, Sushil. Can I have two points? Yeah. Yes, let's respond to a few of those and then let's start getting some okay, I'll, discussion. I'll think, thank you very much, Sushil. Those are very thoughtful um, uh, remarks and, uh, and uh, helpful as feedback. Uh, let me just pick on two com um, points that you made. Um, first, the first one, as I said, the, the main and big misses we made uh, if you want, I mean, subject to what I explained about the conditionality of our forecast, came from changes in our conditioning assumptions. And we did change along the way from assuming that um, energy prices follow the random walk, so they stayed uh, at their extremely high levels for long, which obviously generated a much deeper recession. And then eventually we switched to another conditional assumption, conditioning assumption that they would follow the futures curve, and that made a huge difference. But this underscores the importance of the conditionality of our forecast. And you know, I take as, as the implication of this is that it's very important to present scenarios that show alternatives for those conditioning assumptions, because that's what, uh, in the end, um, you know, generates a lot of confusion. And, uh, and, and uh, those assumptions were, were um, yeah, hugely binding in the forecast. I mean, assuming that um, uh, energy prices stayed at uh, those uh, huge, you know, yeah, extremely high levels, uh, obviously uh, led to a very different uh, projection than what we have seen. Um, the second one, you ask us, um, why didn't you look at the monetary aggregates? We, are, we were actually very, very conscious of those success savings. And that's the reason why we had a very um, beefy recovery, very strong recovery in 2021, which obviously failed massively because then the war struck. So, um, so we had a much, uh, much more, um, uh, much faster and stronger recovery on consumption uh, back in 2021 mm -hmm. um, because of those excess savings. And uh, then we were obviously disappointed and uh, things turned out very differently. And, and you've seen in the end, we, you know, our consumption now is not even back to 2019 levels. Um, but that's what, not where we were when we were looking at those uh, excess savings. Um, I'll probably stop there too. Okay, no, that's great. That's a lot. The, um, and they both all feed back to this forecasts and errors in those forecasts when the world is very uncertain. The errors are going to be bigger, basically, as our thing. Now, let's, okay, let's, let's dig a bit into, we haven't got very long, so I want to cover a bit of what is going on, which is the headline of most emails that we get at the Resolution Foundation uh, these days, then a bit about policy now, and then let's briefly do lessons from po for policy 
for the future, how it's made, how we do it, and the rest. There's a lot to try and get through. But let's, for both of you, then just do, there's a question there. There's a good question here from an anonymous person, which means they put it work at the Bank of England. Uh, <laughs> coming up on the screen uh, now, so you can all see it. But basically, think back to last year. Don't cheat. Think back to last year. What is the biggest surprise relative to what you thought then? Don't give us a long list of the things that you were completely right about, because we've all got those. But what was the biggest, what's been the biggest surprise relative to our expectations to fill space while you have a time to ponder i'll own up to mine so, uh, i am definitely so private sector wage growth is definitely stronger now mm -hmm. than i expected it to be this time a year ago the end that's us there you go well that's enough padding social what's yours so so so, so my surprise uh, is really the extent to which wage growth came down in yep. the us and didn't come down here. Yeah. So it's that relative uh, yeah. that I've been most surprised by. I thought mm -hmm. uh, that wage growth would be sticky here, yeah. but would come down somewhat. Yeah. But the fact that it came down so much faster in the US than here is uh, caught yeah. me out. I, I'm definitely with you on that, Silvana Yogo. I, I actually agree with the Sushil that uh, the um, uh, the, the big um, adjustment in wages in the U.S. surprised me. Also, coming from a, such a very very strong demand position in the U.S., uh, I, I was expecting more persistence. Why there. do we Why do we think U.S. wages have? For those of that again that aren't spending all their time, I'm sure not everyone's spending all their time looking at U.K. and U.S. wage data. Although you should, and if you do, you should come work at the Resolution Foundation. But so why do we think the U.S. Do we think basically we've underestimated? how much workers will respond to supply push inflation in a tight labor market? So, so, so the three candidate hypotheses that I, Ooh, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm aware of are that obviously what happened to our labor supply was much worse than what happened to the labor supply in the US after the pandemic in terms of is it plausibly big enough? I change? don't think so. Every, everybody says that, and I'm like, look no, at the numbers. No, no, no. Sorry. I'm, I'm giving you three, which oh, you're okay, supposed okay. to add up. Okay, I promise not to critique them until you've done all three. Okay, yeah. go. You're supposed to add them up. Okay. I'll show yeah? you. So, so obviously, early retirement, long-term sickness, we don't fully understand that. I don't think they're big enough, okay. so I, I grant you that. The second is that it's measurement error in the US. I asked Larry Subbers. He said to me, you're missing the point. Just use the ECI. The deceleration is smaller there yeah uh, and the third possibility which is pure conjecture I, you know as Silvana's uh, elegant paper in Centra demonstrated I have zero evidence for this so I'm saying this as pure guess and I shouldn't do that but I think the Fed has been uh, having started late mm -hmm has been clearer in terms of its communication. It's not trying to signal a pause. Oh, you're putting a lot. So you, you're, you believe in central bank communication so much uh, that they have uh, on that timeline. Uh, I think it stiffens the resolve of firms. Okay. I, I know that Silvana says she can't find any evidence for it, but at an anecdotal level, when okay. I talk to firms, and our organization talks about to US firms and sure. UK firms, okay. and we That's see that, we, we, that comes back to us. Okay. That the bank has been consistently dovish, yep. even though it's been hiking, while the Fed has just delivered a much simpler message, which is, we'll do whatever it takes. Okay. But I can't prove any of that. 
No, that's fine. So that's three hypotheses. The, um, not about, that doesn't have put a lot of weight on the different nature of the inflation shock in the UK and the US. The UK Which is the trade shock. The real shock has, has been bigger here, so much more scope for catch-up, and yeah. that has pushed nominal uh, uh, growth here more than in the US, even if in real terms uh, they did better. So I, I would you know, place it on the catch-up, uh, more catch-up here. In terms of firms, I mean, I think it's very interesting because in the evidence, um, you know, when firms are asked, well, how does monetary policy affect you? I mean, normally it's zero, they don't, or when you say, how do, how do increases in interest rate affect you? Normally it pushes prices up because they think in terms of their costs and uh, you know, somehow a borrowing cost channel. So it go, that's, in that sense, it goes the opposite way. And even there is evidence for, for households now, and you know, people are working on, on these type of questions when they ask households, how do increases in interest rates affect, you, no, uh, affect inflation? Normally, uh, they say increases lead to higher inflation. So again, contrary to uh, economists' expectations, uh, this direct effect goes the, the, the wrong way. Obviously, monetary policy does affect the economy, and we see that in the aggregate. It works via demand. It affects uh, um, um, the housing market, um, the general aggregate demand, and, and through that, um, prices and wages. But it's not a direct effect from the actual increase in, in, in policy rate or um, oh, I should explain. I meant an indirect effect in the following sense. Oh, we're, we're on the okay, so if you talk to firms, they say that the fact that the Fed uh, has been clearer about doing whatever it takes has made them more worried about a recession. So it's future, okay, de okay. future demand expectations oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is the mechanism. And, and, and that is why they've been reluctant to grant wage increases, okay. while in the UK, the firms we talked to, listen, I, I don't have some scientific yeah. sample, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is anecdote. They say that, yes, the bank increased rates, but they seem very sensitive about the economy because yep. they sounded dovish, and therefore we're less worried. Can I try it? But, okay, but it's the last on the current conjecture, and then we can yep. go to like what policy actually does in the mess we find ourselves in. So the, um, your second chart is a really important one, which I'm, you, everyone needs to remember that now. The second chart, oh, hello, no, we're going to use IT. Are we? Can we bring back the charts? Oh, yes, we oh. can. Right, let's go back to the um, consumption. Oh, wait a second. Oops, something went wrong. While we try to bring you back the consumption chart, it's the, basically the chart that shows you US consumption totally back to trend. Okay, US consumers are spending exactly what we would have expected them to spend. Uh, um, here you go. Great. That's, no, go back one. The, um, one there we go. Yes. Right. Okay, we're, we're there, people. Right. So this this chart is really important. Okay, the United Kingdom consumption is a complete basket case. Okay. So we're talking about everyone's now concluding an economy is overheating in a world where con consumers are spending 10% less roughly, I can't read that chart, but roughly 10% less than they would have done without on the pre-pandemic trend and 10% less than in the United States. At, but there's a difference. The United States has not had a terms of trade shock like the United Kingdom because it ha has its own energy sources, basically. But, it's, but the UK is below the euro area, right? Yet we're also concluding that the UK has got a more entrenched inflation problem. I'd say both those things are now the consensus. Britain's got a more entrenched consent, uh, inflation problem, but it's got lower demand. So those US firms that are saying, we're really sure the Fed's gonna trash demand, but the UK lot might be a bit soft. 
They might think that, yeah. but that's putting a lot of weight on the, bank, on the central bank communications when the reality is their customers aren't spending any money in the UK, whereas the Yanks, yeah. we can't stop them spending because yeah. they're all buying the ukuleles. Yeah. So why, and they are, by the way. <laughs> Can I say one thing okay. on yes. why? Yes, why? I mean, I think this is, a, in some sense, a mirror a, a image of the left-hand side yes. um, graph here. Yeah. I mean, the UK had a much bigger shock. It dragged longer, because, in part because of, of the often pricing uh, mechanism. So, um, so in some sense, with this alone, you go a long way at explaining uh, these very different part patterns. Um, so, yeah. so on, well, let's just do that. Just dig into that a little bit. So, one reading—you didn't say this quite explicitly in the speech—but one reading of it is: Look, Europe and the US are different worlds. Europe has been hammered by gas prices, and the UK is the winner in how much they've been hammered because of the nature of our energy markets and because of our level of reliance on gas. That means a bigger first round effect in this inflation shock. And because what we're finding out is that firms and workers do respond to an inflation shock of that size, probably a bigger second round effect. But lots of that is just still the indirect effect. So firms are still just responding to their costs. Yes, it shows up in core inflation, but really it's still, it's not core core. It's kind of second round headline inflation going on. Really, we'll get to Christmas and just think the UK wasn't that different. It just had a bigger the shock is bigger, but the actual nature of the everything else on the economy is basically the same as the rest of Europe. What do you think? I I think so. I mean, that's, that's not, not much to, uh, to add. I mean, I think that's uh, that's exactly what uh, I would expect. Yeah. That this unwind, I mean, will take a, lo a, a bit longer in in the UK, but eventually we will see this shock unwinding from the cost base of uh, of companies, and they're still paying for this. Uh, they have this high energy costs in their inventories and. Uh, um, and so it's, it's, it's part of, of those indirect um, effects. Right, let's do, let's do policy then quickly. There's lots of questions on this. I'm definitely not going to get through all of your questions due to me already overrunning as an incompetent chair. So, Silvana, so Helia from Channel 4 News has got two questions because journalists have got no self-control. But, um, but while we work out how to bring them up, the I'll read them. So the first question is, how much of a threat is, is it that Britain's facing from interest rates being pushed up too high? Are we, how, how, what's our, how likely are we to be over-tightening right now? Then, and then a second one, which is basically, it's, is it just really difficult for the bank because you've got a longer lags on monetary policy, in part because of the mortgage market? I mean, the longer lags, uh, again, it's, it's part of the debate. I mean, there are uh, factors that are pushing it to being slightly longer than in the past and some others um, possibly um, shortening it. Uh, but what they tell us is that it, it might take slightly longer for monetary policy to have its full effect, but not that the effect will be smaller. So uh, eventually monetary policy will have its impact on the economy. Um, you know, by rebuild preference, I, you know, I, I, I think the policy stance should be looser in order for us to, to meet the inflation target. Um, but obviously, people have different views on, yeah. on this, and, uh, and this is where you know uncertainty is playing a role and, and being reflected in. On on the grounds for your different, I think everyone knows yeah. that Savannah's not voted for the most recent rate rise. On the grounds for your different position to the majority, how much weight are you placing on a slightly different interpretation of the nature of how bad the UK inflation challenge is, what we just discussed, versus a different view on how much of the tightening has already come through and is, how much pain is still to come? I think. Uh, you know, it's, it's mostly light, the latter for me. I think, uh, the, you know, I, I, I take those policy lags uh, more seriously and I, I think it's, uh, um, um, I, I think we've seen very little yet 
of that passive of monetary policy, and that's why yeah. I decided to stop earlier. Um, and there are some indicators that are pointing to, you know, uh, easing, easing um, inflationary pressures, and including REC um, uh, uh, surveys or um, the PPI, as we just discussed. Um, yes, you know, this relationship is not as tight as it used to be, but I, I would find it very hard to see a complete break in, in the link between PPI inflation. So just for everyone, this is in, input prices inputs. are coming down fast. Yes. Inflation, not prices. Inflation, inflation has come down is fast. Coming, yes. the, um, and, and, and some prices too. And some prices so. too. Right, let's, let's move on from that to so Lewis from the FT says, um, okay, you keep voting for holding rates rather than hiking them. Why not move to voting for cutting rates in that world? Because if you keep thinking that the colleagues are making a mistake on the up, then at some point your view on the level should uh, be for some cuts. Yeah, so I mean the policy stance is not just determined by the, the spot bank rate. It, it depends on the whole curve, right? Um, as a member of the minority, I, I don't get to choose the starting conditions. And so um, I, I thought the best I could do is try to um, point to, to the future um, path for the curve and be clear and communicating clear that I would expect um, a loosening would be needed to meet the inflation target. And, uh, and the more we uh, raise rates now, the more the earlier and, and faster I think we will need eventually to cut rates to meet uh, the target. But uh, um, again, the policy stance is, is not just um, bank rates. And, uh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now the next question, well, there's, there's a few on this, but I'm gonna give this to you, Sushil, because um, Savannah is still uh, on, the, it's still a Bank of England for a bit. So there's a few questions which are basically saying, look, uh, shouldn't fiscal policy be helping out here? So Phil from the Observer's got a specific question, which is, how about we just like increase taxes or um, remove some subsidies, which we kind of are doing anyway now? But like fiscal policy, why doesn't it do some work? I'm going to pass down? this back to Silvana. She's not going to answer that, so because I'm on the Economic Advisory Council, so I'm not allowed to answer this. <laughs> okay, this is the problem. Okay, the council needs to stop appointing people to stuff so, so people, people can, can answer a question. I, I, do you want to? Do you want what to I would say is this? that uh, I mean, as always, the um, MPC should take fiscal policy as a given and then react yep. uh, in, in a way that I think you should answer. <laughs> They're not here to hear me. They can, I, I wang on all the time. Okay, right. The answer is that we're already raising taxes quite significantly. The Chancellor raised taxes quite a lot in April on corporation tax and on income taxes uh, and is withdrawing broad-based um, uh, support. So insofar as you might think the fiscal policy was possibly too loose at different points over the last three years, it's less clear to me that Fiscal policy is not. I mean, obviously, it's ridiculous that people. Some people are still saying that anything that's happening right now somehow justifies the idea that you should have had a fifty billion pound tax cut package in the autumn, which some people seem to be saying with a straight face, which is quite impressive. But the, um, but the, you know, anyway. Uh, right. Let's move on to wider lessons for policy. The um, so on. This is a challenge to both of you, and I say this to like most central bankers because this is. So in central bank land, those of you that don't, hands up if you spend your life in central bank land broadly defined in the room. Yes, you do. No, I'm not All right, you're near, you're near enough. Right, enough of you do, right, okay. The, um, you've all made terrible lifestyle choices, but the, um, for the rest of you, in central bank land, people spend a lot of time writing and reading papers about fine tuning of um, central bank communications. 
Like, and they do funny things like offering surveys to the public about like if we if we phrase the communication from the central bank like this, how would you respond? And they get very excited about. It. I was actually at an event where this was being presented at the Savannah was hosting at the bank a few weeks back. The, um, which has a problem, which is that the British public don't hear anything uh, that central banks communicate, and it puts like way too much like trust in your ability of technocrats to communicate to the public because unfortunately these pesky journalists, which there's some in the room, exist. And also the punters are quite busy, I don't know, drinking, panicking about their mortgages and the rest to read in great detail what central banks say. So do you think, and it's common at the end of, whenever people leave the NPC, they do tend to make comments about how we could improve central bank communications. And we could definitely improve some stuff over the last year, as you were gently nudging at the beginning. <coughs> but really, should we just calm down on all this fine tuning of communications? Where you're putting way too much faith in your ability. You can set rates, but you can't communicate in great detail. So sure. I think Basically, you should be a Marxist. It's the economic substance that matters, <laughs> not the light words you use too much. Uh, I totally agree and sympathize with your notion that we spend too much time worrying about fine-tuning. Uh, I still think over 50% of the British population don't know what inflation actually means, at least in my experience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even people in the esteemed professions infuse levels and changes. All the time. All the time. So I don't think we should get carried away there. Okay. However, it's very important, I think, to convey the impression of being on the case and to convey the impression of being in control. OK. Uh, and, and that's much easier than fine-tuning words. That is much easier than fine -tuning. OK, so let's, that's the credibility point. And you've both come on that in different ways. Um, you've emphasized some challenges to credibility in the recent past. And you've emphasized that trying to get credibility via kind of whacking up rates now or focusing on intermediate objectives doesn't really work. But do you agree that credibility does matter in the long run? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And our job, and again, to emphasize, our job is to return inflation to the 2% target. And that's a message that we need to repeat. And that's, that was the message that uh, since the committee started was uh, uh, repeated ad infinitum by MPC members. And, uh, and I think we, we should keep repeating it and, and not assume that uh, yeah, people have it. Um, uh, very clearly in their minds because these are different peoples over time <laughs> and for a long time no, nobody thought about inflation and that's the reality of it and so it's almost natural that people mm. get confused with levels and and, uh, and changes I mean what's interesting as an Argentine uh, growing up in Argentina, everybody there knows what inflation is, and you cannot trick them. I mean, it's like, Anna, and we're it's, trying to not be in that situation. Okay, exactly. Like, we so, want we want ignorance. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what happened over these you know yeah. many many decades. That uh, I mean, a couple of decades that uh, people uh, really stop thinking yeah. about inflation. Suddenly, they awaken to. Um, this new problem and so I think there will be an improvement in understanding unfortunately or fortunately but uh, um, we should keep emphasizing and, and that's the evidence actually that comes from exper experimental work by Koibion, uh, uh, Goronichenko and others that you know repeating the 2% target explaining um, you know the focal point that's what helps people you know understanding what uh, what central banks are about and where they are going other messages get lost and uh, so that is uh, exactly what we should do focus on the one thing we can the one big thing and then do now let's wrap up then with just thoughts on independence because as you said 
you, you didn't enjoy the question marking of independence and of independent institutions, not just the Bank of England, but the Office of Budget Responsibility last mm. autumn. And actually, my general view is over the last, since this tightening cycle started, there has been remarkably little criticism of the bank. As you said, this is the first test of Bank of England independence, really, since um, it happened. But we haven't seen lots of political pressure or public pressure yet on the bank. But it might be coming. Mm-hmm. It might be coming. And it's definitely got more. It's definitely, in the last month, we've definitely seen a bit. It's not sure it's a regime change, but we've definitely seen the start of politicians saying, I'm not going to be defending that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's bad now because they got it wrong in the past, which is a good way of copping out about whether or not they should be doing it now, the, um, uh, which Savannah's chart did a good job of attempting to answer. So on, let's just wrap with your just thoughts on the state of independence, how rocky it's going to get if rates do need to stay 5% plus for a foreseeable period once we see, and it's more, you know, the political cycle and the economic cycle are not the same thing. They just happen to be very heavily entwined in the next 18 months in Britain. We're seeing the exact mortgage pain arriving exactly in the 18-month run-up to a general election. So, come on, Sushil, how's independence going to go? I have to say I've been very worried at the number of people who say that actually perhaps trust wasn't so wrong because, see, mortgage rates went up. You guys said it was because of the attack on independent economic institutions. Mm-hmm. And look, rates have still gone up uh, to those levels. And you know, these are people who have been to the good universities and so on saying that. Uh, now, at the moment, this is just anecdotal. Yep. Um, Maybe it's just bad luck about who you're hanging out with. I know. I, I must have the, all the wrong friends uh, or, or, Wait, we'll, we'll or help the you wrong acquaintances. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I've, been, I've been surprised. Yep. Uh, essentially by uh, the fact that, uh, and, and then the other strand of the argument you hear is that you economists told us that it was much better for technocrats to uh, control inflation because politicians couldn't be trusted because of the political business cycle. But you've gone soft. Uh, but yes, but either you've gone soft or that technocrats are incapable of uh, essentially taking a rounded picture or where inflation is going, and politicians are in a much better place. Now, as you say, you know, these are very early days. Uh, I think, uh, in, in essence, support for independence is still probably quite strong among the people who matter. I uh, want Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves, basically. Those two? <laughs> Anyone else on the list? <laughs> Who else is on the list? Silvana. Silvana's on the list. <laughs> are you copying me? But I want, no, I want you like, but what's our, what is our chance of getting to October 24? without anything bad happening to the consensus on Bank of England independence? I think very high. Excellent. E- uh, yeah. Good. That's what we want to say. Savannah, what is the chance of us getting to October 24? No, I'm not going to comment on oh, that. But on. Uh, just that the biggest lesson from history is that bank, uh, central bank independence is crucial for a low and stable inflation. And um, that's, uh, I, I hope we don't, we don't uh, um, forget that lesson. Very good. Okay, look, let's wrap up on that thought, which is basically, it is a pretty tough time, both for everybody in the economy and then for policymakers trying to wrestle with that uncertainty. And one of the lessons from history, actually not just on monetary policy, but on fiscal policy, on economic policy more generally, is just because things are tough doesn't mean it's better to make it worse by trashing the institutions. 
so don't do it, anyone that's watching. Can we all say thank you to Silvana for all of her thoughts today and for her six years of service on the Monetary Policy Committee? Thank you. <laughs> and to Sushil for his comments as well. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming and for making, in the vast majority of your cases, the right lifestyle choice, which is that you don't work in central banking. And so you can forget all about this, except when it comes to remortgaging. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.